Well, hey there, New Hope Eugene. That is a man who is in the active work of knowing and understanding his wife, even in his latter days. It's so great to have you. My name is Brandon. I have the wonderful privilege of being a pastor. If you're joining us for the first time, no matter where you're at, uh, here in Lane County, around the world even, so great to have you. If you're back a second time, welcome back. Some of you also saw the Session 3 Discover You video at the very beginning of service. That is a friend of ours, Joy and I, uh, Jeanette McCormick. She's going to be our guest speaker doing Session 3 on Actionable Calling. And uh, the reason I bring that up is I just want to remind you that today is the last day to sign up for Discover You. And uh, we, we pray and trust that you'll be able to join. It's going to be a great time. If you missed the first five weeks of our series, Our Living Hope, uh, as we study kind of this ancient uh, letter that's been preserved for us in the Bible, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those first uh, five uh, uh, messages. And part of the reason is context, historical context, cultural context is huge in understanding First Peter. I want you to um, know something. I want you to just a quick observation through the first kind of five weeks, the first couple of chapters of First Peter. So far, Peter has not let these struggling, persecuted uh, Christians know why they're being persecuted. He's simply given them instructions on how to live through it. So, before we dive in today, what I want to do is uh, if you're wearing glasses here in a second, I'm going to have you take those glasses off. And uh, if you do not wear glasses, uh, you're going to pretend you're going to wear fake glasses today. So here we go. Go ahead and take your glasses off. Give those eyes a rub. That feels good. And what you've just done is you have taken off your 21st century lenses and we're all going to put on right now together. One, two, three, our first Centrally, century glasses, huge in understanding certainly the New Testament. I think more specifically, First Peter, and certainly even scope down even further, these seven verses that we're going to study today. So uh, the first seven verses of chapter three, this is a continuation of a thought from chapter two. Peter has been talking about submission, Christ's submission to God, our submission to Christ. We even talked about uh, slaves' submission to their masters last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. And now what he does is he scopes it right down to the marriage unit and how we submit to one another in this foreign culture, this chaotic time. How will you act and how will the community around you kind of step up to the edge? What will they peer in and see in this contrast of a Roman culture and a Christ-following culture? Now, if you're not married, please do not check out. And here's why. Uh, if you're not married, maybe you have dreams of being married one day. Maybe uh, you're widowed, but you still have a, a hope and a dream of being married. Maybe your first marriage ended in some hurt and pain and disaster and regret, but you have hopes of, of redeeming that, being married again. Maybe you have a grandson or a granddaughter who's engaged to be married or a son or a daughter. So, so, so Peter's words, Brandon, what's the point? Peter's words really apply to all of us today. Here's what's interesting. I think the piece of wisdom, the singular piece of wisdom, the big idea that we're going to land on today very well could be the best marital counseling that we've received in our lives. Could it be this simple? So here we go with our first century lenses on. We're going to read First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, wives. Uh, the title of my message is Alien 
marriage. Wives, likewise, so it's a continuation of a thought. It's this idea of submission. Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. He goes on, do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart uh, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now he addresses husbands in verse 7. Husbands, likewise, underline it, bold it, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So uh, this passage has been known to create a little controversy in the church. And I know ladies uh, who just bristle at the thought of Peter's advice here to ladies, to wives. And rightfully so. Think about this. Um, You know, it just kind of insults our 21st century hearts and minds. Uh, Ladies, you know, submit to your husbands. How about this? As to the weaker Vessel, he tells husbands, relate to your wife as to the weaker vessel. Or this, as Sarah obeyed, the idea of obedience, as as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Uh, I've been actually suggesting this one to Joy for years. And uh, men, if you're wondering, it has not gone well. In fact, I was preaching through 1 Peter uh, a few years ago, and I decided to test this out once again with joy. And so I shot her a text. I said this, uh, I'm preaching on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, conveniently left out verse 7 in here. And uh, one, one tra- just parenthetically, so, so you know, one translation where it says, um, Sarah called Abraham Lord, in the message it says, uh, she called him my dear husband. So um, I, I knew, I'm kind of baiting Joy. I knew she would go pick up her Bible and she read it. And she reads from the message translation. So her text back to me was this, my dear husband, uh, you're not adding verse seven. And my, I, I originally started with, you know, emoji, smiley face. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on first Peter one through six. And she says, Hey, you're leading out, le- leaving out verse seven. And, and her emoji was this one right here, the classic rolly eye emoji. And so I asked her, I said, listen, the, the whole Sarah Abraham story is not really working for you. And she says, Oh, it works for me. You just wait with an exclamation point. And uh, I signed off this way. No problem. Just as long as you call me Lord. And uh, her, her sign off was simply the rolly eye emoji. So men, maybe do not make this one your life verse. Uh, and so those, those who would claim maybe that if Christianity in the 21st century had its way, according to Peter's words here, you know, men would probably own women as property uh, and, and, and all, of the, all of the benefits of society would only favor men. And this is why it's so important, friends, why I had us take off our 21st century lenses and put on first century lenses so we could understand what Peter is writing into. We do not want to mistakenly uh, pour, import something into the historical context that Peter 
is writing into, just like we learned last week when we kind of unpacked this idea of slavery, what seemed to be almost like this rubber stamp approval of sl slavery actually was just the opposite. It was the heart of Jesus, this, this incredibly focused, highly subversive plan to undo slavery and to undo this idea of hierarchy entirely. And I think by the time we're done today, hopefully you'll see the same thing with, with this idea of submission and hierarchy in marriage. I want you to notice that uh, Peter spends about six times the amount of instruction with ladies than he does with men. And so ladies, I heard one lady say this, that's because men need shorter directions, right? And it's just probably true. So history, history, first century Rome, even in Jewish culture, but especially in Roman culture, it favored men almost entirely. Uh, if a man, for instance, became a Christ follower, it would just follow suit that his wife would become a Christ follower, his children would become Christ followers, but it didn't work the other way around. So if a woman decided to follow, decided to follow Jesus, it became very precarious. It, it wouldn't follow that her husband would follow her. In fact, she could be punished, he could divorce her, he could even kill her, uh, depending on how upset he was. And so the idea of a woman becoming, a married woman becoming a Christ follower, leaving the ancestral gods, uh, you know, of her family and, and beginning to follow and worship Jesus uh, was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of courage. It was a sign of faith. It was a sign of strength. Why? Because women in that day virtually had no rights. There was a guy named Cato the Elder. He lived a couple hundred years before Jesus. He was a, he was a Roman historian and a, a war hero. And he was quoted as saying this, if you were to catch your wife in the act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity to you, men, with impunity, without trial. William Barclay notes that Roman matrons were prohibited from drinking wine. And a Roman senator named Ignatius, actually with an E, Ignatius, beat his wife to death when he found her doing so. Another Roman official dismissed or divorced his wife because she once appeared in public without a veil. There's another Roman official who divorced his wife because he saw her seek, secretly speaking to a freedwoman in public. Still another Roman uh, influencer divorced his wife because she was once she, she went to the public games one time. The culture in first century Rome was such that women uh, could not make their own decisions and all the power was with the men. So life was incredibly difficult for women who were brave enough to become Christ followers. And it's into this culture, it's to these ladies that Peter is addressing his thoughts. These brave women these are women whose wives, uh, Peter alludes to, that have not left the ancestral worship of the Roman gods. Now, I want you to notice what he does not counsel them to do. He does not counsel the ladies to divorce their husbands, to leave their husbands. He doesn't counsel them to, uh, you know, um, to, to preach and nag them. He doesn't counsel them to kind of shove this new egalitarian equality, mutuality heart of Jesus in the face of their husbands. What he does counsel them to do, in summary, is this very simple be a good wife. Now, some of you may even bristle at that. But in those days, a good wife was one who respected and submitted 
to her husband. And this idea of submission, before you check out, before you, you know, you shut your laptop, <laughs> this idea of submission was not some passive, ladies, it was not some passive, spineless submission to men. It created, it, it, it required a great deal of maturity, a great deal of courage, a great deal of selflessness, a great deal of faith and trust in God. Why? So that my spouse could grow closer to Jesus. Further, why we would ask the question why there's a bigger picture at play that, that, that we'll, we'll, we'll look at here in just a second. But, but another big reason why is this. Peter didn't want these ladies to die. He wanted to spare their lives, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to, to say this, so that, so that those who maybe are not Christ followers could actually observe your behavior and be one to Jesus. What a beautiful picture. This is the same message that we find all throughout chapter two. Friends, live your lives in such a way, Peter said in chapter two. So, so live your lives in such a way in this culture among pagans so that when they see your behavior, they may see your good works and glorify God. In heaven. And he takes the same idea from chapter two and he just scales it right down to the marriage. He goes on to talk about, you know, inward and outward beauty. Here's what's interesting. You know, contextually, first century Rome, a, a young girl at the tender age of 14 would be called a lady. Now, the, the, what, what's the scope? If everything is slanted toward the man, what is the scope of a first century young girl's life? It would be simply this, to make herself look appealing to a man, hopefully a rich, influential man. That, so most of them spent their time just making their outward beauty as appealing as it could be. The Roman economy really bears this out. If you were to look at some of the archeological records, uh, pearls were a huge deal. Nero is said to have had walls, entire walls, uh, you know, in his palace covered with pearls. Julius Caesar bought his mistress a pearl worth in today's dollars, U.S. dollars, $70,000 for a single pearl. Pliny the elder saw uh, the emperor, the emperor's wife had a dress completely covered in pearls. So I want us to remember that Christianity was born into this world of outward beauty and op opulence and, and luxury. And Peter comes along and he calls Christian women, wives to live counterculturally, to live differently. He calls them to journey inward to a quiet and gentle spirit. So ladies, let's trans, let's port this, let's bridge this into the 21st century. This is not a license to let our outward beauty go. This is not a prohibition, for instance, on doing your hair or wearing nice clothes or a dress or jewelry or makeup. Peter's point is this, when our outward beauty becomes our only aim, we become ugly fast. Gordon MacDonald's book, Ordering Your Private World, has this kind of main thrust, that a successful public world will grow out of a healthy private work of character and integrity. I, I, I've also come to know this as the oversized gift principle. This comes from Dr. Tim Elmore, kind of a, a similar thought. And he, and he talks about the idea of someone just um, functioning outwardly based on their giftedness, but they forsake their interior life. And, and he says this, leaders sabotage themselves when their gift is bigger 
than they are. In other words, how we look and act and function outwardly compared with who we are inside. And Peter would come along to these wives in the first century and he would say, ladies, in a world driven by opulence and outward beauty, you will sabotage yourself if your exterior life overshadows your interior life. But I think, men, this applies to all of us. How many of us spend more time in the gym than we do in our Bibles? Or how about, or neither? Uh, how many of us are more concerned about our career than we are with our character? Maybe we could summarize these first few verses this way. Will my behavior help my spouse grow closer to Jesus? And Peter would say, especially if they're not a Christ follower. Now, I want to read verse 7. We're going to end with verse 7. And I want to stop right here. I cannot overstate this enough. What we're about to read, we read it earlier as if we were just kind of reading a book, just read through it. What we're about to reread was absolutely a bombshell in first century Rome, first century, first century Jewish culture even. This would be one massive tectonic plate grinding against kind of this other, this other tectonic Roman culture plate, absolutely alien, an absolute affront to Roman culture. He says this, husbands, likewise, underline it, bold it. Likewise, one translation says, in the same manner, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. I want you to notice that word likewise, again, or in the same way. And so, men, I, I want to suggest what, what this means to us, how we can translate this, is Peter comes along, he says, listen, hey, men, now, now I want to talk to you. I'm applying all six verses that I just talked about, all the instruction to ladies. I'm giving that to you as well. And I'm actually going to give you some additional instruction. The, these words right here would have brought an entire first century Rome to a screeching halt. The idea of, of mutuality, of understanding, of giving honor to the wife... <laughs> Absolutely not. And where does it come from? Friends, where does this idea of respect and honor and mutuality, where does it come from? It comes from the heart of Jesus. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of women's rights, if you will. Remember that quote from Cato the Elder that I shared with you earlier. Here's what's interesting. I didn't finish the quote. I want to share it with you now. So he said, in review, if you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity without trial. Here's the rest of the quote right here. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. And indeed, she has no right. Again, all of the power in this culture is the man. And Peter comes along and says, hey, we're going to actually balance things out. This would have been an affront to his readers. I want you to notice he says, dwell with them with understanding. The Greek transliteration would be this, live together according to knowledge. Men, hear me. Know, actively know your wife. Not, not just five years ago, not just 10 years ago, but do you know your wife today? Well, I asked her a few questions when we got married 25 years ago. That is not what Peter's saying. Know your wife today. What are her fears, her likes, her dislikes, her preferences? How has she changed? Know that, understand it, and adjust to it. This idea of knowing your spouse. I heard a story of a couple named Joe and Anne. 
and they were at a marriage seminar and the guest speaker uh, stood up and said, men, you need to know your wives. In fact, you need to know your wife's favorite flower. And Joe, full of confidence, leaned over to Anne and said, sweetheart, it's Pillsbury, isn't it? Our video, I can hear all of you laughing on screen, I know. Our video, right at the beginning of this man, I think the reason this Google video has more than 11 million views is, is because it's a wonderful, beautiful picture of this elderly man who actively knows his wife and even in his later days is working to actively know his wife. This is the picture, I think, that Peter paints for us. Know your wife. Live with her with understanding. Notice he says, give honor. One translation says, respect. And it, we would unpack this in the Greek as a pricing. It's an estimate of worth. It would be how we esteem someone based on on their value. Well, friends, where does our value come from? Does it not come from the imago Dei of God? Let me me drill down on this. Let me give you um, kind of an illustration. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, her her estate was auctioned off. And and it fetched, as you can imagine, it fetched millions of dollars being married to JFK. And um, it, it wasn't the large items that everyone knew would fetch a heavy price tag. It was kind of the common items that that people were just mesmerized by how much money it brought in. Let me give you a few examples. A normal worn footstool, not an antique, not a family heirloom, just a normal, probably one that Kennedy's just purchased at a department store, fetched over $34,000. Things that we could go to Target and buy, we could buy at Amazon. Some of the stuff we could even buy for pennies on the dollar at Value Village. How about a tape measure? Anyone own one of those or have three or four of them clinking around? One tape measure fetched over $49,000 in the auction. JFK owned a walnut tobacco humidor and it fetched over $500,000 in the auction. Why, friends, why? These common articles that we could buy for just a few dollars sold for many times more they're worth. Why? Because of who they belong to. Men, let me ask you a question. Who does your wife belong to? Your wife belongs to God. And Peter would come along and he would say this, put a value on that and act accordingly. Notice he says this, as to the weaker vessel. And I laugh every time I read this because uh, Peter was obviously not talking about my wife, Joy. If you did not know her, she is a beast in the gym. She loves fitness. Uh, She is stronger than me in many, uh, um, you know, exercises. In fact, she's my personal trainer. So you can be praying for me every week. I have to work out and uh, she is my personal trainer. So uh, this is not the case. Peter did not have joy. Joy would be the exception, but so two translations of this would, would be this. As a general rule, Brandon and Joy excluded, God, and even as I say this, some of you are going to kind of raise your hand and say, I know an exception to the rule. That's, that's not always the case. I'm just saying as a general rule, God created the male body stronger than the female body across the board. Here's another uh, translation, probably something that Peter had in mind. It's this. It's the socially weaker position. He probably had both in mind, but maybe more so this one. The idea that, that everything is stacked against women, all the power belongs to men. And he would say, men, you, you need to come alongside them as the weaker vessel, the one who's in the socially weaker position. It's precarious. They're being beaten. They're being humiliated. They don't have any rights. 
Come alongside your wife as the one in a socially weaker position. William Barclay said this, chivalry toward women was unknown in the ancient culture. It wouldn't be, for instance, uncommon for, uh, you know, to see a man riding on a donkey in some ancient cultures and the load that he should have been carrying or the donkey should have been carrying is actually in the arms of his wife who's walking alongside the donkey, right? And so at 21st century lenses, we would go pluck him off his donkey uh, aggressively and we would take the load from the lady, put it in his arms and put her up on the donkey. Here's the deal, friends. Where does this idea of chivalry and honoring our wives and coming alongside them, where does it come from? It comes from the heart of Jesus. Notice he says this, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, revolutionary thoughts to first century Roman ears. This is, this is the beginning of, of, of equality and, and women's rights and mutuality. The Apostle Paul echoed this in Galatians chapter 3 when he talked about hierarchy. He said, listen, there, there's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so where maybe a modern culture, if we still had on our 21st century glasses, we may look at this and go, you know what? If, if, if Christianity had their way, again, men would just they'd probably own women. And Peter comes along and he, he deals this blow to that idea. He actually talks about mutuality and respect and equality. He says to the men, treat her as equal heirs of the grace of God. And he ends this way. I want you to notice it, that your prayers may not be hindered. Friends, I can't tell you how many times that my prayer life has been fretful, unfruitful, because the spirit of God would send me back to reconcile with my wife, with my kids, with key relationships in my life, in my life, rather than, you know, do kingdom business and in, in prayer and pastoral work. Brandon, you've skipped about five steps. Why don't you go back and reconcile with the most precious relationships in your life? That, that word hindered is to cut down, it's to cut off. It's actually to be knocked out. It's to be rendered ineffectual. Men, some of you, your prayer life has hit the mat. It's been knocked out. And you've wondered, why do my, my prayers seem to be bouncing off kind of this glass ceiling? Peter would come along and it's, he would say, listen, you might want to take a look at reconciling with your spouse. How do you treat your spouse? See, some of you right there, the quarter just dropped. That, that was worth the price of admission into this book called First Peter for you. And in all this, New Hope Eugene, as we wind down, in all this, I think that Peter's after something regarding our conduct. And I wonder, I wonder if it could be just this simple. So our big idea, we end with it today, it's this. Does my conduct help my spouse find and follow Jesus? Brandon, could it be that simple? Could that be the key that unlocks joy and reconciliation and health and wholeness in my relationship with my spouse? Does my conduct help my spouse find and follow Jesus? Husbands and wives, what if we all did this? What if we all asked this question every day in our lives? Parents, what if our son-in-law applied this question to his life who just married our daughter? What if our daughter-in-law 
applied this question to her life, who just married our son. What if our greatest future mistakes, our greatest relational disasters could be avoided if we all just ask this question, does my conduct help my spouse find and follow Jesus? You hope Eugene, listen, in, in, in a 21st century world, now with our 21st century lenses back on, in a 21st century world, desperately needing to see contrast, desperately needing to see Jesus, to see something different, to see, needing to see health and wholeness. Does my conduct help my spouse find and follow Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom of Peter. Thank you for the bravery of Peter to write the, these, these lightning rod words into this first century culture, turning it on its ear, bringing honor and respect and equality to first century relationships, setting the stage for us and, and how to act in the 21st century. God, would you give us the courage, husbands and wives, in our relationships, would you give us the courage to act accordingly? Lord, we want to be a contrast, a healthy, beautiful uh, answer in our culture today. One that our culture would step up to the edge. And maybe, maybe they don't step over the line of faith right away. But maybe they peer in and they see something appealing. And one day, they would say, you know what? My heart is turned to Jesus. Whatever that couple has, whatever that person has, I want it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Bless you, New Hope Eugene. Have a great week.